So in the programs that you've developed, do you work with children? We work mostly with the offender. There are cases where we have done apology and reparation sessions when the whole family is is up to that. Um, But we do not have the time to do near as much of that as I would like to do. But um, actually, I took a 13-year kind of hiatus from the direct service work while I was at the office of the attorney general. There would have been a conflict of interest. And so basically, I handed it over to Steve. And Steve did a lot of the, the group work and really honing in more and more about how much do we engage, focus on engagement and connection and how can we do the best we can at that in order to keep them engaged so they're willing to work on making lasting transformative change. We can get anybody to pretty well say what we want to hear. But what we want to do is get them to that point where they are looking internal. Yes, because that's one of the things that we find, um, I guess, interesting in our work is that we have, for example, in the family um, law area, that people sign up to orders to say that you're to do, say, a men's behavioural change program um, if you've been someone who's been an offender of family violence. They'll go along and they'll do a program for a period of time. They've ticked the box and get the certificate. Um, But that's one of the difficulties is that doesn't mean that they're being genuine or gained insight or um, have sustained any change. So I guess I'm interested in Steve. Um, Dorothy's just talked about that you did a lot of that group work and about looking at sustained change. Can you tell us a little bit about how we could overcome that issue that we have in terms of... um, when we just have people really going to do programs for a tick box sort of situation and a little bit about the programs that you deliver. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Yeah, I just want to add that uh, Dorothy wrote this grant. Dorothy got a program going in 1990. And in 1993 or 92, I'm listening to Dorothy tell this story. And I'm list- I'd never met Dorothy. I'd never noticed her. I was at the University of Kansas going to social work school. And Dorothy's doing a presentation on domestic violence. And I was a youth probation officer, adolescent, and I knew nothing. I, I had no idea how domestic violence would be related to an adolescent, young you know, kid's youth probation officer. I was just completely naive. But I saw Dorothy and I was like, holy smokes, where did she come from? She is amazing. Uh, And she was beautiful and knowledgeable and poised. And I became so interested in domestic violence at that point. I decided that if that was my doorway into meeting this person. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. And and so I want you to know that we kind of look at our relationship as kind of domestic violence, a love story, really, because... (laughs) We've been talking about this stuff and exploring this stuff and arguing and disagreeing and examining for 29 years or longer. And it has been an amazing ride uh, starting being so naive about such an important issue and being mentored by Dorothy along the way. It's just been 
a remarkable experience. And uh, so I, I came to this work very innocently. I had no interest in domestic violence. I didn't know why it would apply to me or the work that I did. And holy cow, does it ever. Yeah, um, you know, what you said about checking the box, uh, I believe that in a really quality men's behavior change program, that one of the asks is that participants become accountable and take ownership for their violence, their abuse. And people in our program can make a list that is 50 to 75 behaviors long of all of the behaviors, abusive, dominating and controlling, cruel things that they have done to their partners and their kids. And there is no reason that a court shouldn't ask for participants who complete a program to share what did you learn in this program and can you identify your abusive behaviors and can you talk about the impact on your partner and your kids? It's not enough to just show a certificate, but what did you learn while you were there? And if you can't do that, then maybe that relationship with the kids needs to be protected somehow. Maybe there needs to be some safeguards put into place or continued because people who are really being accountable can talk about the horrible things that they've done. And I think that's a reasonable expectation of the system to be able to look at someone who has completed a program and ask them to be able to do that. Now, the process of being able to get to that point is a rough road. It's, it's hard. People come oftentimes to behavior change programs not believing or believing that they don't have the problem right? That it's their partner. They did nothing wrong. You know, it's just that in Kansas, they always arrest the man. It's a woman's state and you know, all these things that they say. But what they're doing is living what we call externally focused. It's hard for them to acknowledge their own culpability, their own flaws, their own challenges that they've experienced in their lives. Uh, it's much easier for them to exist in their life being very external focused, talking about what other people are doing to them, how they've been victimized by the system and by their partner. And that's all normal. And I think about all of that as a product of, of trauma survival. Can I ask a question about that? Because sure. um, I hear that some people who go to a program and they, they don't take that responsibility at the first step, they're not accepted into the program and so therefore they don't get um, an opportunity then to move through the program. So um, what happens, what's the best way to handle that yeah. situation when you're confronted by someone who's, want, who, who's asked where you've got a court that says, we want you to do that program. The program goes, well, we're not going to accept you because, because you can't you're, take accountability. you're not taking accountability. Yeah, acknowledge and it. And what you're saying is that's quite a common first step. That's, that is the norm. Yeah. yeah. That is the norm. If we get someone who's coming in and says, holy cow, you wouldn't believe what I've been doing in my family for the last 10 or 15 years, that would be weird, mm, right? Yeah. But we understand that nobody wants to talk about the cruelties that they've done in relationships or in their communities, and that's... That's the external focus. How do I avoid having to touch these things that are painful for me too? And so the process is about engagement. It's about connection. It's about building safety for those who are creating fear and unsafe environments for those around them. If, if, we, can help to, if, if we can help them to, to feel safe, 
to feel like that they can connect with and share horrible things that they've done without being judged, without being shamed, without being humiliated, but just we're all in this work together pursuing the healthiest relationships that we can create. Then once that safety gets established, people will talk about incredible things that they have done, that they have believed, that they have thought, that have happened to them, cruelties that happened to them long before they were ever cruel to anybody. Without that safe place, people will justifiably protect themselves. And we do that by minimizing, denying, blaming, keeping an external focus perspective. And so part of our job is to know that that's evidence of something, that it's not a it's not weird, right? It's evidence that something has happened, that they have experienced something, and how do we create the space where people can move beyond that and move to what we call an internal focused conversation, which is the mission. Once we get our, all of us thinking about ourselves and our own story, then the conversation changes and it's no longer pointing our fingers at others, but just you know, looking at ourselves. And Nisha, that's the thing. We're turning people away that potentially um, are self-referring but aren't meeting the threshold of accountability in the first instance. So we're losing the opportunity to engage with that person or they've got the pressure of court through family court and not seeing their children. So whether they do it because they feel in some ways it's under duress because, well, if I don't do this, I don't see the kids. But if they don't take that accountability, we're losing them. And it's just, it's a real flaw in our, in our programs, in, in the intake um, of our programs. We, we, we used to operate that way. And uh, I can remember many contentious conversations with participants about, you know, you can't be here at our program unless you take some kind of ownership of violence and abuse that you've done. And I, it was a horrible way to start a relationship that was going to hopefully impact people's well-being beyond just the person. That's right, isn't it? Because it takes time, I think, for a person to really understand their behaviour and to learn to even move to an acceptance that they have acted in that way. Um, So then to just expect someone to turn up to a group, to turn up or just to turn up to someone they've never met to say, hey, look, I did all these terrible things to my children and my wife or my partner let me into your group. That's yeah. that's a huge thing to ask someone to do. And it's um, unrealistic. Yeah. It's so never going to happen. Perhaps we do need to start um, to rethink that method. Yeah. Um, so have you got any ideas on how um, we can do that to oh, ensure that we, there's a wider have, scope? That we have been playing with these ideas for, you know, 20, 30 years now trying to figure out, you know, how do you engage people who don't want to be there who don't think they have a problem and who are blaming the system and their partner and everybody else. And how do you walk them into an internal focused dialogue? And we have uh, our very first meeting where we meet with, you know, many times it be my first time I meet these people, we do an orientation with them and we take them through a conversation that includes definitions, you know, that abuse is any attempt to impose one's will, uh, which is Mahatma Gandhi's phrases. And then violence is any attempt to create fear, 
right? And then physical violence is any of that other stuff where there's physical contact, imposing will, creating fear in order while there's physical contact. And we build lists with them of what would be some examples of how someone could be abusive, physical violence, emotional violence, sexual violence, verbal violence, all these things, you know, and they talk about just starting there. And we share stories about times that we have failed in our relationships and said things that we shouldn't have said. And we've normalized that cruelty exists commonly in relationships. But as we get more and more responsible for ourselves and our behavior, that cruelty goes away. So it it's, we have to make it relatable. We have to treat them with respect. And I remember 30 years ago when it was all about, you're going to have to acknowledge all of this or you're not gonna get into the program. And I think back to that and shudder because it is, it's keeping the people who need the, the help the most and who, who might even be open to getting assistance, it's keeping them blocked out at the door. We used to do the assessment and then two orientations just to get them to admit one little thing so that we could get them in the door. And now we don't even do two orientations. We do the assessment and we do one orientation. And I would say, what, 99% oh. of the time, they are acknowledging all kinds of things. But it is done with the facilitator of orientation leading by example, making it relatable, and by doing the list, it's, it's magical the way it works. They no longer feel like you're judging them, but rather that we're all in this together. The other thing that, <clears throat> that we, excuse me, that we changed was that we no longer focus so much on the term domestic violence. But instead, we talk a lot about cruelty. Yeah. I have noticed that in the conversation yeah. that you're talking about cruelty. So just explain, uh, you know, why you've sort of changed the term and, and what impact that has on your work. It's a bit of powerful shift. Mm. Uh, the, the line where that change happened was I read a book by Alice Miller called The Drama of the Gifted Child. I was actually looking for help in the bookstore about how to help our gifted son, who is amazing in math and science, but struggling in personal relationships. And, and I saw this book and I looked there, this is the hope I need for my son. And I had no idea that it was gonna change my life forever. But Alice Miller talks about cruelty and the two definitions that we apply to our program. One is the intentional infliction of pain and suffering. The other is the blatant disregard of another, right? So anytime I'm making a decision that impacts you or that impacts Dorothy or impacts my staff or impacts other people, and I don't take their interests into account, I just make the decision and do what I want to do, that becomes an act of cruelty. And when we understood those definitions, I went into work and I told our staff, we're, we're changing today. 
We are not going to use the word domestic violence. We're going to talk about cruelty, and we're going to talk about the river of cruelty, how cruelty flows from person to person and from generation to generation. It's not that a person just decides, I'm going to dominate and control my partner and be the king of the castle. But in our orientation, we're putting these check marks on the board as people acknowledge, well, I've done that one and that one and that one. And we talk about the check marks are evidence of unresolved cruelty that happened to us long before we were ever cruel to anybody. And we ask, so who was cruel to you before you were ever cruel to your partner, your children, or anybody? And in the orientation, the first time that we meet them, it opens this pathway into their story where they talk about their stepdad. They talk about their older brother. They talk about just briefly, the things that happened to them long before they did anything cruel to anyone. And so we tell them, in this 27-week class, we're going to get you started on this road to do two things. One, we're going to ask you to be accountable for all the cruel behavior that you've used toward anybody. And we want you to just make a list and just write it down and make the long, it's like an Easter egg hunt, you know, for lack of a better, just go find them, go listen to other men while they're talking. And when you hear something that, yes, I've done that, write it down in your list. So, and we want you to be accountable for that. But the second thing is probably the more difficult thing. And that's going to be, we're going to ask you to begin healing the, the cruelty that happened to you, the mark that that cruelty left on you that was probably not your fault. It was nothing that you deserved, nothing that you earned. It wasn't good for you in any shape or form, but it happened or didn't happen. It could be things that didn't happen to somebody. And we're going to ask you to become dedicated to healing the mark that was left when people were cruel to you. And so healing the cruelty that happened to you and being completely accountable for all the cruelty that you've done to other people if you could take those two pieces and wrestle with them, then you might have a chance of creating these amazing relationships that we all dream of, but many of us have given up hope that we could ever create them because we don't have, you know, we're, we're busy surviving the river of cruelty instead of living our lives. Well, that seems to create a much wider view for people to think about um, behavioral change because I think that that, gives them more options about looking at what has happened to them. Whereas we look at just the concept of violence, I think it locks people into a pers one perspective. That's yeah, a beautiful so. statement because that's, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. People feel less, you're a horrible person, and they start having an, a, a model that gives them an understanding of how did I get here? And and Alice Miller makes it really clear. It doesn't, it doesn't do any good to blame our childhood for being abusive. And we don't want that to happen. We're not using childhood as an excuse for domestic violence. But the doorway to intervention is most is, is widest at the point of trauma responsiveness. That if I want to intervene with, with cruel behavior in families, that the history is a beautiful place an entryway into the whole behavior change. And we've been afraid of it. You know, uh, people are, they don't want to give those who batter an excuse. We don't want to make an excuse for that behavior. 
And we don't want to take the, the focus off of the, the experience of the victim, right? We're not, we don't want to go, oh, he was a victim too. You know, but we do want to create safety. We want to create equality. We want to create a healthier family system. And looking in a trauma responsive way, that is the cleanest way to access responsibility, uh, emotional affect, all the things that are required for behavior change to occur, internal focus dialogue. So one of the things that <clears throat> that is often said is you're just colluding with them. You're giving them an excuse for being violent because you're talking, you're letting them talk about their childhood. But it isn't that we're giving them an excuse. In fact, we're giving them an added responsibility. So you or I get to choose how much we want to dig into the different things that have happened to us in the past. But if we go to the length of being violent to our partner, we no longer have that option. It's like Dr. Bruce Perry said in his book, What Happened to You? We're asking them, what happened to you? And we'd been doing that, asking that exact question long before his book came out. Because there is so much that people learn, unfortunately, <clears throat> excuse me, in their traumatic experiences. They learn certain beliefs they have about themselves and certain beliefs they have about uh, the opposite gender and certain beliefs they have about the world around them and what opportunities there are for them and how they've got to, you've got to just take care of yourself and uh, beat somebody else up before they get to you. There are so many beliefs that come out of our trauma. So having them explore that is critical. And I just wanted to add about the, the term cruelty. When we first started looking at using that term, I was asking people at the national level, what do you think? Oh, don't do that. That's don't use harsh. the term that's a harsh word. Cruel, because that's that just doesn't you will shut people down. Well, what we found is that when it comes to the term domestic violence, all kinds of defense systems can be used. Well, what I did doesn't really fit that definition because blah, 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 blah. So it can get into this struggle about um, statutory language. Well, domestic violence is much more than what's written up in the criminal statutes. And so when we changed to using the word cruel, it seemed like a lot of those defenses went away. Everybody knows on some kind of gut level that there have been times that they've done cruel things to other people. And so it just seemed like when we use the word cruelty, it really helps us access connection with them. 